I showed you those videos because whether it was the first video by John Piper, the second one by Jeff Bethiki, or this one by Trip Lee, you, everybody in this room can find yourself. You either have lived that lifestyle where you felt, you know, I'm too dirty to be saved, or you were resentful or angry, or like Trip, and I love to f- show that testimony by Trip Lee because it breaks so many of the stereotypes. When you see a dude get up there in the big brimmed hat and all that kind of stuff, and, and then he starts with, I've never been drunk, and he lived this lifestyle, and he grew up in this lifestyle, and yet I love that line. He said, I was giving God praise with my lips and spitting on him with my life. You'll also hear in these testimonies the struggle of fear, the struggle of being alone, the struggle of belonging, all of these types of struggles. And you're going to see this in Mark chapter 11 as we deal with the idea of religion versus Christianity. And everything we've done today is to try and highlight that. Everything in your bulletin is meant to try and help us understand there is a cataclysmic difference between religion and Christianity. But let me ask by saying, who or what are you afraid of? Who or what are you afraid of? I I think some of you now are getting to know me. It is very humorous in people that have known me growing up and in the church that I was last in, in Grace Baptist, that I have a phobic fear of dogs. And it doesn't matter. It's not just the big dogs. In fact, it's often the wee little ones that really freak me out. When I was a a young boy, I uh, was doing my paper route in Kilbride, and I got chased and bitten by a German shepherd when I was about 13. And that has changed the way I see man's best friend. Because I don't believe it. I'm not buying it. All right? And my problem now is I am petrified of all dogs. Now, I do pretty good once I know they're safe and stuff like that. But it can hit me at any time. Debbie and I have been walking recently around our neighborhood. And we went for a walk. And there was this little Shih Tzu in the front yard. And he was eyeing me up like I was a pork chop. And he was sitting there just staring at me. And I was walking along with Deb. And I said, Deb, if that dog comes tearing out of here, I am going to squeal like a girl and pee myself and run. Or, and she's like, Steve. The thing is barely the size of a basketball. Why are you so afraid? And you know what I said? That's my problem. I'm so terrified now. If this dog came running, I'm fearful that I wouldn't just act. I would overreact and I would do something to said little dog that could end little dog's life. And I would overreact. And you know what? Often, if you study church, And religion, it is people overreacting instead of acting. We overreact instead of acting. So what are you afraid of? Who do you fear? What makes you anxious? In Mark chapter 11, you're going to find how this exposes wrong fear because religion feeds fear. Religion feeds your anxieties. It feeds your fear. But as we turn our attention to a group in the Bible called the Sadducees, because they were sad, you see. There you go. That's my funny, cheesy joke for the day. The Sadducees were moral people. They were religious people. They were God-thanking people. And yet you're going to find out they're totally lost. They trusted in something or someone other than Jesus himself. In fact, in your Bible, the Sadducees as a group of men are mentioned 14 times in the New Testament, never in a positive way. In the Gospels, 
they first appear with the Pharisees when John the Baptist is baptizing. And John the Baptist, this is how he identified them. He called them sons of snakes. That's a great way to make friends and influence people, isn't it? He challenged them by saying, who said that you could escape the coming wrath of God? John the Baptist demanded that they show repentance in their lives and that they not make the idle boast that that simply because they were Jewish, somehow they had the inside track with God. You can read all about that in Matthew chapter 3. Later, the Pharisees and the Sadducees would team up to test Jesus and they would ask him in Matthew chapter 16 to prove that he was God. They basically said, do a song and dance. Show us a miracle, Jesus. They were almost like, you know, jump, Jesus, jump, and let's see how high you can jump. It was not because they wanted to believe in him. It was because they wanted to expose him. And if I had the time, it is a great study that you understand how the Sadducees became in the power they did. They did because back in 168 B.C., with the Jewish revolt, the landscape of Israel, of Judea, changed forever. The Maccabean family led this Jewish revolt, which led to Jewish freedom, and it declared in 142 B.C. And then this Maccabean family became the priesthood. And then, for the first time in Israel's history, the priesthood became a political office. Years later, when you come to just before Jesus' time, a guy that many of you might know if you read your Bible, a guy by the name of Herod the Great, who was responsible for many of the great artifacts that you see in Israel to this day, he marries into this Hasmonean family, and yet he himself is an Edomite. And if you know your Bible, you know that back in the Old Testament, there were two sons of, of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And Isaac, sorry, has... Uh, Jacob and Esau, sorry, Jacob and Esau. And remember, in Romans, Paul says, Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated because Esau rebelled against God. And Herod the Great is a descendant of Esau. And so he then marries into this Jewish family and eventually Rome says that Herod the Great is the king of the Jews. Can you imagine the slap in the face that was to Israel? That a descendant of Esau was now their king that the priesthood had now become a political office and was basically who could ever bribe or cajole or backstab their way in would get the power. And because of that, now the high priest was appointed politically. All of these things. So the Sadducees was a group of religious elitists. They thought they were in charge. They treated the temple and the law as a means to an end. Now, imagine what that must have been like for the average Jew going to the temple. For the average person going to the place of worship and instead you were encountered by a priest who likely felt he was better than you. Have I not just described a lot of institutionalized religion today? A lot of what people feel today, they go to church to find help and instead they find condemnation. They go to church to be vulnerable and instead are taken advantage of. They go to church to find peace and instead they find chaos. There are very few examples of the Sanhedrin of the priesthood that were positive examples outside of Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist. Most of the priests that made up of the Sadducees, especially the high priestly office, they were power hungry. They believed that works made one righteous. Now, if you remember, church, a number of weeks ago, I shared with you a quote by Dick Halverson in which he said this. Christianity began, began in Palestine soil, but began on Palestinian soil as a relationship with a person. 
It moved to Greek soil and it became a philosophy. It moved to Roman soil and became an institution. It moved to British soil and it became a culture. It moved to American soil and became a business. Church is often business today. And when I say American soil, I mean North American, Canada and the United States. But I want you to understand, there's nothing new under the sun. This statement that I have on the screen before you it happened before. It was in the first century. When Jesus was about to lay down his life for sin, the Sadducees, the religious people of the day, had made a business of God's law and sacrificial system. So here's the one thing I want you to take. Here's my question for everybody. This is the one thing I'm going to revisit over and over again before I let you go. Here it is. Are you a disciple, a Christian, or are you just a religious person? Are you a Christian, a follower of Christ, or are you simply moral? You're, you're just a moralistic person, man or woman. You've kind of turned over a new leaf. You're try, trying to just pull your bootstraps up and clean yourself off and clean yourself up, make yourself look good. And yet we've heard it in that video, right? It's like throwing perfume on a corpse. But everybody here, every one of you, I plead with you before I go on my holidays to answer an, that question. Are you truly a disciple, a Christian, or are you merely religious? I began by asking you, who do you fear? And in Mark chapter 11, verses 12 to 33, I want you to notice how many times these Sadducees fear things. Let's look at it. Read with it through me with you, or read with me through it, as I begin in verse 12 of Mark chapter 11, where Mark records for us, on the following day, we are coming towards the end of Jesus' ministry. When they came from Bethany, he, Jesus, was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, in other words, it looked beautiful. It had wonderful color. The leaves were there. It was just blowing in the wind. It looked inviting. It looked beautiful. It was in leaf. He went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves. For it was not the season for figs. And he, Jesus, said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. Now, I want you to realize this was obviously an object lesson, and I'll tell you why. Notice the very next words, and his disciples heard it. That's important. And then they came to Jerusalem. Now, all of that happened because now this is going to live out in living color. This whole fig tree thing is going to live out in reality for these disciples. When they come to Jerusalem and he, Jesus, entered the temple, and look at what he does. He begins to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. He didn't just to go in and start tipping tables over and telling these guys. They could, he stopped. Everything froze. This is leading up to Passover week, the busiest week in the entire temple year. And Jesus hits pause on everything. I'm sure the Roman soldiers at the fortress of Antonia probably slowly put hand and sword and everybody got tense because they wondered, is this a revolt? Is this a reformation? Are the Jews going to rise up against Rome? He just froze everything in time. And as he was teaching them, 
He said to them, that's the Sadducees, the Pharisees, all the people, is it not written, my house, Jesus says, my house, shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it, and they were seeking a way to destroy him. Now notice, for they feared him. If you're marking your Bible, underline feared him. Now notice why. They didn't fear him because he was Jesus. They didn't fear him because he was powerful. The, the reason they feared him is the next, passage, next sentence. Because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. They feared Jesus because of the people. And when evening came, they, that's Jesus and his 12 disciples, went out of the city. So this awkwardness passed. And as they passed by in the morning, so 24 hours later, they're passing in the morning. They, the disciples, saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. This is a miracle. In 24 hours, this tree is dead. The next good wind, the next good storm, this thing is going to fall over. It is going to be dead wood, driftwood. It is going to be completely useless. And Peter, notice Peter, he's always the guy, quick of, quick of mouth. Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look. The fig tree that you cursed has withered. Now, here's how we know this was an illustration. Notice what Jesus says. Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Again, if you mark in your Bibles, take note of that. Have faith in God. Here's why. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes what he, that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Now, I want you to hang on to that because it almost sounds like Jesus is saying, you pray right, we can flick Signal Hill into the Atlantic. All right? Just hold on to that in your minds. Therefore, so because of this promise, if you have faith in God, amazing things are going to happen. Because I tell you this, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, now notice this, this seems odd. It almost seems like Jesus is laying the foundation for a prosperity gospel. And then he gives you this left hook with forgive. Forgive. If anything, if you have anything against anyone, so that your father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. And they came again to Jerusalem 24 hours later. And he was walking in the temple and the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. So now they've got the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin. They've got the scribes. These were like the experts of the law. Now you've got the elders. Now you've got the political powers. Now you've got religion and politics coming to Jesus. And notice what it says. By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority to do them? They are still not pleased with what happened yesterday. And I love the way Jesus handles religion. Because he almost always answers a question with a question. And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. You answer me and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Here's his question. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it one with the other. They got into their holy huddle and they have a little chat. Now notice what they reason. If we say from heaven, he will say, why then do you not believe him? But shall we say from man? Now notice again, what did I ask you about fear? They were afraid of the people. For the people, they all held that John really was a prophet. So they felt they were damned if they did and damned if they didn't. 
they were afraid. So they come back to Jesus, and I love this. We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. So what I want to take you through very quickly, we need to understand how does religion work? How does religion work? If you need to know the question, remember, are you a Christian? Are you a disciple? Do you know Jesus or just know about him? Are you just simply religious or are you a believer? Well, you got to know how religion works. So letter A, religious people try to look impressive but they produce no fruit. You saw that in verses 12 to 14. Jesus comes up on this fig tree. He sees that it's covered in leaves. He goes up to find something. He doesn't find anything. He curses it. Now listen, guys, ladies and gentlemen, see this. Jesus didn't just curse the fig tree because he got ticked because he was hungry and there was no fruit. This is the same Jesus that could perceive people's thoughts. This is the same Jesus that could feed 5,000. This is the same Jesus that cured all kinds of diseases. He rose people from the dead. This, Jesus wasn't upset as if he had a childish cosmic temper tantrum because there was no figs to eat. This is not what he was doing. He's illustrating something. And the text makes that clear because remember what I said at the end of verse 14? His disciples heard him. See, this absolutely fruitless fig tree that Jesus cursed was to teach his disciples a lesson. It's to teach us a lesson. And that lesson is what the disciples are about to see when they walk into the temple, which is they walk in and they observe a fruitless religion. A religion that has all kinds of form, all kinds of pomp and circumstances, all kinds of dressing up and looking good on the inside, but was completely empty. And you'll see about this in our church. We're going to study 2 Timothy eventually. And in 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul says about this type of people, religious people, he said they are lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Do you know what that means? That means people who are much more in love with God's stuff than with God himself. So give me God's stuff, but don't give me God. Listen, if I can be so blunt and bold, that's like getting married just for the sex. It really is. You don't get married for that. I didn't get married to Debbie for that. I got married because I was in love with Debbie. If I got married only to have physical intimacy, how long does that last? So if you come to Jesus just for his stuff, you will be sorely disappointed. But if you come to Jesus for Jesus, you will never thirst again. And so it's a fruitless religion. Notice this, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people. You see, the Jewish religion of Jesus' day had become completely fruitless. And that's what this fruitless fig tree represents. And you know what? I know it's an illustration because if you read your Old Testament, and again, if you take notes and you want to do some follow-up study, you can find the Old Testament uses a fig tree to illustrate the fruitlessness or the barrenness of Israel over and over again in Jeremiah chapter 8, Hosea chapter 9, Joel chapter 1, Amos chapter 4, Micah chapter 7, Haggai chapter 2, all talk about a fig tree representing fruitlessness. So when Christ comes on the scene, he picks up this metaphor, this barrenness of Jewish religion, and he become, it has become a fruitless 
religion, not bringing them or anyone else closer to God. In fact, these religious rituals, these practices actually kept people from coming to God. Because you know why? how else religion works? Not only does religion try to look impressive, but number two, religious people have different priorities than God does. Religious people have different priorities than God does. That's in verses 15 to 17. 17. Look at what Jesus does in verse 15 to 17. He goes in there and he drives them out. He turns tables over. He just completely freezes everything. He walks in there. I can't imagine what that was like. These were people that were used to people fearing them. They were used to them going to them and dealing with them with respect and, and everything was very quiet and likely subdued. It was organized chaos and yet there was proper and pomp and circumstance and order and Jesus just comes in and makes a mess of it all and in other words, he totally overturns their priorities and I need you to understand Jesus was not going in there to reform the temple. He was actually declaring judgment on it. I want you to understand what's going on here. The Temple Mount was huge, all right? The demand at Passover was incredible. And normally the market for selling sacrificial animals was located on the Mount of Olives, which was a higher peak on Mount Moriah that overlooked the Temple Mount. But the high priest in Jesus' day saw the opportunity and he basically opened a mall inside the temple in what was called Solomon's Colonnade. He opened up a mall and all of the people there at what was called the Court of the Gentiles. Now, let me give you an idea of how big this was, so how upset Jesus must have been. The Temple Mount in Jesus' day that Herod the Great built was the size of 35 football fields. 35. It was about one-sixth the size of the entire city of Jerusalem. During Passover, upwards to 250,000 lambs would be sacrificed. And that does not include doves or pigeons which have been far greater in number because they were the sacrifice for the poor. We read about that in our passage. Now, for about three weeks before the Passover, tables were set up in Solomon's colonnade and along the, the court of the Gentiles so they could collect the temple tax that was supposed to be used for the temple's upkeep. But the Sadducees had turned the temple and worship into a business. This place of worship See, the people needed to exchange all of their currencies into what was called Tyrian silver. And the reason they had to do that is because any Roman coins and most of the coins of Asia Minor would have had a depiction of one of the gods, the Greek gods or the Roman gods or Caesar. And that was not acceptable to the Jews in the temple. And so they had to exchange their money. So then using that money, they could then buy sacrificial animals. Well, of course, to do this, the exchange rate, the guys charged all kinds of high profits on their exchange rates and then on make matters worse because of all this congestion because of all this commerce all the main thoroughfares around the external the external of the temple got clogged up so people just said well i'll just cut through the temple so it just became a walkway a breezeway uh, a, a, a traffic uh kind of valve if you will to relieve the stress where all the people was now that, i don't know about you but i would say they got their priorities wrong this group who was supposed to bring people to God actually blocked people from God. Their actions really said, we don't care. This place and this time was supposed to be about worship and prayer, but they had turned it into a time of business and profiteering, and it gets worse. Notice in our passage, Jesus says, 
Uh, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. He's quoting Isaiah 56, 7. And again, this is a statement of judgment. It's not reform. Jesus is saying that this could not be tolerated any longer. He's saying, I'm about to do something incredibly, incredibly horrific and life-altering. Notice his next statement. He said, you have made this a den of robbers. Now, this should be a clue to you as to what we're supposed to learn from this. Because Jesus there quotes Jeremiah 7, 11. He's calling out the people, the condemnation is for those outside of the temple who live in sin, then they enter the temple to think they can hide from their sin. You see, the den of robbers is not where you go to steal people. It's where you bring what you have stolen and you feel safe. And so Jesus is saying, you've turned the temple into a den of robbers. He's attacking them for allowing the temple to degenerate into a safe hiding place for people who think they can find forgiveness and fellowship with God no matter how they act on the outside. In other words, it does not matter how you live. Just come, make sure you take part in the rituals, and you're good. Have I not just described most of institutional religion today? And it can happen here. The sins these men were to preach and live against, they were guilty of even in the temple itself. How does religion work? Thirdly, religious people are offended by the truth. Verse 18. Now notice that I said, right? They feared him, but they didn't fear Jesus for who he was. They feared him for the fact that the people were astonished by him. In other words, he was popular. So you don't knock down who's popular. And we see that all around us. You see that in sports. You see that in Hollywood. If someone's got power, if someone's got prestige, if someone's got influence, you're careful on how you attack them. And that, that because Jesus threatened their way of life. And their fear of the wrong thing creates in them a desire to kill Jesus. Can you imagine? That? They were supposed to be about Jehovah. They were all said they were looking for the Messiah. The Messiah is right in front of them, and they're looking for ways to kill him. They were that blind. They were that blind. Because you see, listen, ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, friends and visitors, sin blinds. It deceives you, and then it will kill you. James said in James chapter 1, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. One old preacher said it's Satan's LSD trip. Lust, sin, death. Listen, the one thing I have learned in my 40s is this, and I have far too many scars. Sin will always promise what it can never deliver. It really will. And I'm not just talking about the big sins that we go to. I'm talking about anger, self-righteousness, superiority, gossip, impulse buying or spending, thinking that you can buy happiness, thinking that you can alleviate the stress in your life if you can just vent your anger. Sin will always promise what it can never deliver. And you'll notice nextly, religious people are spiritually dead in verses 20 and 21. As they pass the fig tree, Peter notices and proclaims, look, the fig tree is dead. And he gets the lesson. 
He really gets the lesson. Jesus is teaching them, look, this religion, everything that you see in this temple, even though it is filled with people, even though it is filled with activity, even though you can see everything happen, I want you to realize it's dead and I am going to tear it down. Because religion is spiritually dead. And in verses 27 and 28, you'll notice religious people challenge authority. Religious people challenge authority. The Sadducees are upset. They walk right up to Jesus and they confront Jesus. He'd embarrassed them and humiliated them, called down judgment upon them, and they demanded to know on what authority. Now listen, don't you find that the authority of God's word is being challenged today? Don't you find now that everybody says, well, we have a Bible, but it'll get interpreted based on how I want it interpreted, not how the, God, the Bible actually says it will. And so really, we've set ourselves up that we're our own God. The Bible submits to us rather than us to it. And so this is how religion works. And finally, in verses 31 to 33, religious people are full of fear. You see, as I said to you earlier, when I was reading the passage, Jesus answers the question with a question, and they refuse to answer it because they are afraid. I am telling you that I have dealt with enough people that are religious, and I have to be honest with you. When I have witnessed and evangelized, I had an opportunity this week, as I said to you, to get a couple of bus tickets for a couple that were hurting and things had gone horrifically wrong in their life and they needed a way back to Stephenville. They had no friends, no family, nothing. And while I'm talking with this couple who are staying down at Mon and they are out of money and I'm talking to them about life and I start to share with them about Jesus, you know what they never did? They never yelled at me. They never said, well, that's your opinion. Thank you very much. They never said, look, shut up, either help me or get out of my face. But I will tell you, I have some very dear family that are wonderfully moral religious people. And every time I try to talk to them about Jesus, you know what they tell me to do? Steve, shut up. That's good for you. This is what's good for us. Don't confuse me with the facts. I've already made up my mind. In fact, they'll say things like, don't you judge me. What, do you think you're better than me? Listen, I'm just as good as you. And what authority do you do this? And this is what you will see over and over and over. But you know what? I will tell you that when life throws them a curveball, like it's happening in my family, that I can't go into real detail right now, but my extended family is facing imminent death. And I got a phone call two weeks ago from a member of my family who has never wanted to talk to me about Jesus. And they are completely gripped by fear. Because you know what? Now their world is falling apart and they have absolutely nothing to cling to. That's what will happen. That's where religion leads you to. Fear. So, all right, that's that. Now, let's make this a lot more positive. So what does it mean to be saved? What does it mean to be a Christian? All right? Don't want to leave you on Debbie Downer. Oh, sorry, Debbie. That's the, um, uh, <laughs> on Stevie happiness, all right? So what does it mean to be saved? All right, in verse 21, look at this. Disciples put their faith in God. Notice what Jesus says to them in verse 22. He says, have faith in God. You see, the fig tree was a lesson, not only a lesson in failure, but the failure of fruitless religion, but it was a lesson in faith. The new order that Jesus is going to set up is based in faith in God that overcomes insurmountable odds, is sustained by grace, it's characterized by forgiveness. If you want to see God move mountains in people's lives, if we want to see God use us to bring people closer to Him, then we must pray with absolute faith and confidence in 
God. You see, Jesus did not come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people alive. Jesus did not come to make us moral. He came to transform us, not reform us. There's a massive difference. And because of that, we can now pray according to His will. Notice what James says in James chapter 4. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You see, this is the problem. When you, when you believe about God but not believe in God, you will never have a very satisfying prayer life. But when you believe in Him, you trust Him. You trust Him with the circumstances of your life. You trust Him with the answers that He gives you. And you know He's never ticked with you. You know He's never trying to take something from you. He's never trying to hold something back. And I love it. It's the illustration. I think I've used it here with the kids. Okay, because you guys are all too old. You would never do this. None of you would ever throw a temper tantrum, right? You are like holy kids. Like you guys never get angry. All right. So I know I'm not talking about you guys, but have you ever gone to the mall, to the Avalon Mall, to the kiosks? You remember back in the day, I'm going to date myself. You remember the date of the loot bags? All right. Come on now. Some of you are old. Come on. Join me in this. Right. The one dollar loot bags that you could go. And or do you remember this? You go to the kiosk. You remember that paddle, the wooden paddle with the elastic band with the ball on the end? Remember that? All right. More kids went blind as a result of that than anything else. But when you're two or three years old, you see that thing and you think that like the hallelujah chorus breaks out when you see that. And so you say to mom and dad, I want that. It's a buck. But mom and dad know I will spend the buck. You will get the paddle with the elastic band and the ball. You'll go a fumpa fumpa before it either breaks or you kill somebody else or potentially kill yourself. And then it's going to be completely useless. Like most of the toys at the dollar store. All right. Not as a commentary on the dollar store. Maybe it is. All right. So you say as a good parent, no, I'm not going to buy you the cheap paddle elastic ball weapon of death. <laughs> and what do a lot of kids do when you've seen this? What do kids do? They have a complete meltdown. You are robbing me from my happiness. My life would be complete if I just had that ball paddle with the elastic band ball. And they completely throw themselves. and They think life is over and they think you are the worst parent ever. And then often you have to pick up said child, snotting, snorting, kicking, screaming, and you walk them down the hall. And then what happens? You bring them to the store, sports store and you walk up to this massive wall of kickballs. They're of all colors. They are $30, $40 each. And you sit your child down as the, the boos are running down here and they're wiping the tears and they're looking at this and they're in awe. And you go, pick one. And they can't believe what you were going to do for them all along. How often is that God with us? We see something, and it's just a cheap imitation. It's like a paddle with an elastic band and a ball that's going to break or hurt us. And God says, no. And you and I are like, I can't believe it. God, don't you know that that will complete me? Don't you know that that will make me happy? Don't you know that that will give me joy? And God says, no. No, and we are like, who are you, God? Where have you been? I needed you and you weren't there. And the whole time, God has to sometimes pick us up, kicking and screaming, snotting and snorting, and he brings us somewhere and he puts us in front of what he was planning to do and he says, here, my child, pick one. And you're shocked. You see, religion, disciples put their faith in God. Religion doesn't. Next, disciples are not hindered by obstacles. That's verse 23. Now, I want to correct something, okay? Okay. 
I said this, alluded to it earlier. Jesus says, if you will pray in faith, you can say to this mountain, get up and throw yourself in the sea, and it will. This is not Jesus teaching, name it and claim it. This is not where if we don't like the view, let's all get together next Saturday, go down, sing, hold hands at the base of Signal Hill, sing a few worship songs, pray, and say, Signal Hill, go get flicked out in the ocean because we need a better view. And if we pray in faith, it's going to happen. That is not what Jesus is saying. Remember the illustration of the fig tree. Remember where they are. They're on Mount Moriah. They're on the Temple Mount. Jesus is basically saying to them, listen, when I die and I am rose from the dead, this mountain will be destroyed. This will no longer be the place of prayer. This will no longer be the place you have to go to have a direct access to me because that's what it was in their world. If you wanted to pray and get really close to God, you had to go to the temple. Why do you think even to this day Judaism hovers around the Western Wall? Because they believe that the closer they can get to where the holiest of holies is, the better access to God they have. In fact, in Jewish literature, one rabbi said that when Jerusalem was destroyed, he said, prayer shut its doors. But Jesus is saying, no. Because I'm going to create something new. The church, I'm going to put my Holy Spirit within you. You become the temple of the living God. And now, wherever you are, whenever you are, you can pray and God will hear you and answer. That's Christianity. It gives you access to God, which means disciples receive answers to their prayers. You see, the Sadducees were about clinging to their power, but Jesus turns all that on on its ear. Remember I said Daniel and Amanda are going through... Forgotten God. I cannot recommend this book high enough. In that book, he tells the story of the Holy Spirit's power when he tells about a guy named David Phillips and his wife Lynn. They felt God stirring their hearts in a different direction. They discussed what they were most passionate about and realized that bringing relief to suffering children and reaching the next generation with the gospel were at the top of their list. So they talked about starting a relief agency. And even though they both had some fears, now watch this, they committed the matter to prayer. And after much prayer, this couple set aside their fears. And he and Lynn launched the Children's Hunger Fund out of their garage. Six weeks later, in January of 1992, Dave received a phone call from the director of a cancer treatment center in Honduras. The director was asking if there was any way that Dave could obtain a certain drug for seven children who would die without it from cancer. So Dave wrote down the name of the drug and told the director that he had no idea how to get this type of drug. Then they prayed over the phone and asked God to provide. As Dave hung up the phone, before he even let go of the receiver, the phone rang again. It was a pharmaceutical company in New Jersey asking Dave if he would have any use for 48,000 vials of the exact drug. Not only did they offer him $8 million worth of the drug, they told him that they would airlift it to any place in the world. Dave would later learn that the company was one of only two that manufactured that drug in the entire United States. So within 48 hours, Dave had the drug sent to the treatment center in Honduras and to 20 other locations as well. It was then that he realized that God was at work validating his calling to this ministry. 
You see what Christianity does? That's what happens when God's people pray in faith. Pursuing His calling that He has placed on our lives. He supplies everything we need. Now, notice verse 25. Christians, disciples, forgive others. Forgive others. Now, this is interesting. In our passage, the Greek word for forgive actually means loosening a ship from its moorings. It means to release an individual from accusation or obligation. You see, the Sadducees would not forgive. Remember, they were right ready for Jesus as soon as he came back the next door. They were angry. They were bitter. They were all tied up in their bitterness and their fear. You see, the lack of love and forgiveness in our own hearts keeps us tied down. It keeps us from doing God's work. So we need to release people from their offenses towards us. We need to let them go. We need to set them free so we can too be free. Let me give you an example, and I'm almost done. Richard Moore of Derry, Northern Ireland, was 10 years old when he was shot in the face by a British soldier with a rubber bullet at point-blank range and was blinded for life. He was on his way home from school. For as long as he could remember, Richard wanted to meet the soldier who shot him. 30 years, when he was 40, he finally got to meet him. After discovering who the soldier was and where he lived, Richard wrote to him, Richard did it, to get permission to visit, and he met with the soldier face to face, offering the soldier his personal heartfelt forgiveness. But here's what Richard later wrote about the experience. You ready for this? He writes in his journal, After that, something peculiar and wonderful happened. Something inside me changed. Something paradoxical. I began to realize that the gift of forgiveness I thought I was bestowing on the soldier who shot me was actually a gift of God from God to me. It didn't even matter whether the soldier wanted or needed forgiveness. The gift freed me. It left me with a sense of peace and blessedness. He said, all through my boyhood, my mother had wanted the impossible for me, that I would be given back my sight. I even woke up one night to find my dear mother on her knees next to my bed, pleading with God. And when I met the soldier and forgave him, I believe my mother's prayers were answered. I was given a new vision, and my real wound, the one that needed healing more than my eyes, was healed. Do you want to be loose from bitterness that's holding you back? Do you want to be set free to serve God wholeheartedly and effectively? (laughs) Then in your own mind and heart, let go of the one who has hurt you. Loose that person from the obligation to pray their sins. Set them free, and you will find that God will set you free. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. And finally, Christians submit to the right authority because Jesus is Christ and Lord. So my final question, rack again. Are you a Christian or are you religious? You see, what? let me give you the big picture of what's happening here. Jesus uses this fig tree. Jesus talks to his disciples and he basically says, listen, I'm now taking the place of the temple. The temple won't be where you go now to find God. I am God and I have come to you. 
He announces forgiveness. He heals the sick. He restores persons to society. He replaces the money changers where worshipers had to pay for atonement. And he gives us the Lord's table that we celebrated last week. He announces that his free offering of his life provides forgiveness of sins. The pouring of Jesus' blood will replace the sacrificial system. His death is where mankind can be reconciled to God forever. Here's my question. Will you take Jesus? Will you come to Jesus? Let him do it. Don't try harder. Believe better. Stop performing and let Christ be your Lord. And if you are here this morning and you're a Christian, you know what this is? Here's your takeaway. Real faith is fruitful. Real faith is fruitful. Jesus said in John 15, whoever abides in me and I in him, it is he that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. What I sometimes worry about is how much are we doing in the church and we don't do it in Jesus' name. We do it in our strength. It makes me wonder, what are we doing in our church today that keeps people from coming to God or at least makes it harder for them to meet Christ? Listen, can this church be filled with people that look bad, smell bad, talk bad, and act bad, and you and I love them? Because when we look at them, we see ourselves. Because you know what I am? I'm simply a dirty, rotten sinner in clean clothes. That's all I am. I'm a dirty, rotten sinner in clean clothes. Can people come to this church and see Jesus? Jesus Christ came to blind those who saw clearly and to give sight to the blind. To heal the sick and leave the healthy to die. To call to repentance and to justify sinners and to leave the righteous in their sins. To fill the needy and leave the rich empty. Christians, listen. Real faith is also cleanable. Real faith is cleanable. Jesus goes into the temple and he cleans house. Jesus cleans the temple. And of course, as we've learned from the passage, the Sadducees rejected it. But what about us? See, does Christ have the authority to point things out in your life and go, you know what? You need to stop doing that. And it's not because I got a rule for you to obey. It's because I've got something better to give you. See, if you only look at Christ as a list of rules, see, if I only looked at my marriage as, well, I stay in my marriage as long as Debbie doesn't cheat on me. Or Debbie will love me as long as I don't cheat on her. Guys, that's a really shallow marriage. I love Debbie because she loves me. She's given me everything. And she's only a figment of what Christ has done for all of us. I pursue Debbie. I want to be loyal to Debbie, not because she'll stay, but because she does stay. It's not to convince her to stay. It's because I live on the glorious promise she is staying. And it frees me to pursue her. Can Christ clean house in our church today? You see, religious rituals cannot cover your sin. We can't hide behind our church attendance. We can't hide behind our tithing and our offerings. We can't hide behind singing hymns and praying to prayers. We can't even behind having said a prayer asking Jesus into our hearts. One of our evangelical rituals. 
It's not that these things are bad. It's just that they cannot hide our sin. Only Jesus can cleanse us from sin. Trust Christ to get rid of your hypocrisy. The greatest hypocrisy in the church is that we claim to have no hypocrisy. Just own your junk and know God's freedom. And then real faith is prayerful. Real faith is prayerful. We need to get on our knees before God with humble hearts, full of faith and forgiveness. And we need to pray prayers like Ephesians, where Paul says that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints. Now, here's what he wants you to comprehend. What is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. See, listen, it doesn't matter how smart you are if you don't believe God loves you. Degrees don't help you know that God loves you. Notice this, that you may be filled with what? All the fullness of God. And look at this confidence that Paul has. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. Do you realize God will do more for you than you can even think? (laughs) According to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. I think that's a very fitting benediction. Let's close in prayer and then sing to the God of wonders. Father God, I thank you for this opportunity. What did I pray that has been conveyed with not performance but with passion? Lord, I don't want to preach you. I want to be in front of this congregation real and honest. Lord, you're all I need. Father, you're all I want. And I pray that that would superimpose itself on the hearts and minds of people here as it brings you pleasure. That today, brothers and sisters, friends, visitors, doubters, skeptics, searchers, the hurting, those that are in denial, those that are proud, would all realize, my goodness, religion offers me nothing, but Jesus has done everything for me. Oh, Father God, free us now as we sing and close with God of wonders that it's not just a song with a ditty of a tune. But Father, we'll be overwhelmed at how wonderful you are. You have destroyed false religion. You have replaced the temple. You have torn it down. You have cast it into the sea because now because of Jesus Christ, we can have access to you as our Father Your spirit now resides in those that are yours and we can cry, Abba, Father, and know that we can come boldly before your throne and you hear us and you forgive us and you well up wells of forgiveness within us. And so, Father, I ask that you would revive St. John's, but I ask you to start it with me in Calvary Baptist Church. And if there's anybody here who doesn't know you, if there's anyone here that's tired of playing the game, if there's anyone here who needs prayer or anyone needs an encouragement, I pray that they, Father, will not give in to their fears, that they will come and ask myself or Paul or Daniel, find a friend that someone they can pray with, Lord, that there will just be a spirit of vulnerability and transparency and healing amongst us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen.